Hi, and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. We're librarians with the Beaufort County Library in South Carolina, and we today are celebrating our belated one-year anniversary by discussing some of our all-time favorite books. Um, Anne, happy anniversary. <laughs> Did you think we would make it this far? Honestly, no. <laughs> I thought we would do we would do this and it would be great, but it's I, it just surprises me. Yeah, it's been a year. Yeah, I, it went by fast. I yeah, 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 yeah. Like it isn't so much that I didn't think we would get to this point, but I can't believe how much we've talked about at yes. this point. So that's yes. kind of shocking to me I when I look back on our archive. I there's know. so many books recommended. So yes, it's exciting. Many hours of talking about books. Now. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. And how hard was this for you to come up with just only three all-time favorites? Well. Actually, the thing that that was a little harder was that I had talked about so many of my favorites already mm-hmm. on the podcast, and so I kept thinking of things I would love to, to discuss, and I remembered that we had already talked about them. So uh-huh. I thought I could do like an alternate podcast <laughs> compiled of past favorites, um, but I luckily had plenty of other favorites that I could pick from. Yeah. Um, but if you want to reread The Talented Mr. Ripley, yeah. then that would be pretty high <laughs> on my list, or Persuasion. Uh, I Both of those I thought, oh, I'm so stupid for talking about those before, but... Oh, well. Oh, well. Well, it was very hard for me. I had, I don't even know how many yeah. that I was sifting through. Probably at least 10 to 15, I'm yeah. guessing, that I really had to narrow it down to just three yeah. for the discussion. Because I've been reading a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was, you know, all-time favorites. That encompasses everything I read right. when I was a kid that I really right. loved. And so it was really hard, I think. So hopefully I'll be able to sprinkle in some in the future episodes where the topic allows right. it or maybe I'll reread some and that will be my what I'm reading this yeah. week because it was really hard to narrow it down for me really hard for to narrow it down to yeah three. it's hard when when there so many of our childhood favorites especially are classics that people know pretty right. well right. and so it seemed like well I'm not going to talk about Anne of Green Gables yeah That's such oh yeah a famous book but a great book and a, a favorite book. so um yeah. I, I could have easily done only childhood favorites yes in this, me too in this discussion I know so all right, well, you want to get started? Sure. So my first book is Seven Gothic Tales by Isaac Dinesen. And this is a short story collection that I purposely didn't talk about during our short story episode because I knew that we were going to do this at some point um, and I wanted to reserve it. But it kind of cracks me up that for as much as I complained about short stories in that episode, um, my favorite book of all time is a short story <laughs> collection. So a little bit of hypocrite. Um, Isaac Dinesen is the pen name of Karen Blixen, and she is a Danish writer in the mid-20th century, and she's most famous for writing out of Africa. I think pretty much that's what people know her for. Um, but she had dabbled in writing through uh, her entire life, but she only started writing seriously once she returned to Denmark after her years in Africa. So her career was kind of, she sort of had two careers. Um, her, first, her first book is Seven Gothic Tales, which was written in 1934, and it's more indicative of her normal style than you find in Out of Africa. Um, which was written, I think, three years later. So actually, most of her books are short story collections, and she wrote in English rather than in her native Danish, which makes the language really lush and kind of unusual. It's not awkward or incorrect in any way, but it's really distinctive, Mm -hmm. and and it's just some of the most beautiful writing I've ever experienced. As as the story indicates, these are old-feeling tales. Mm -hmm. They sort of have this antique feeling, and they're like... It feels like they come from an uh, earlier writer than someone that's writing in the 30s. So they are populated by nuns and prostitutes and ballet dancers and barons, and they take place in in Danish seaside resorts and in castles that are crumbling down. 
and it just feels so like it should be written in in like the early 19th century but uh-huh. there's more to it than you usually find in in those stories uh-huh. um from that era so it's uh, they're just so gorgeous they're so the settings are so beautiful and the writings are so writing is so beautiful i i just adore this this collection but it's kind of hard to talk about because i don't want to tell like to tell a short story is to tell the entire thing mm-hmm. so so instead i will just sort of tell you about one of my favorite ideas from the book which is the theme of identity and the way that it can be really malleable um and that was something that when i read this in college that was something that really grabbed me and and just completely just just entranced me mm-hmm. at the time so there's a uh, one of the stories is called The Dreamers, and there's a passage that at the time really resonated with me. And I think I maybe even talked about this during my reading life ep- episode. I want to say I did. But I feel like you did. I can't remember. I'm going to say it again, if that's okay with you. <laughs> that is fine with me. Great. Um, so this quote in this in this story called The Dreamers sort of became this guiding principle in my life. Um, the story itself is about a woman who has changed identities several times, and she tells another character, this is a quote, she says, I will not be one person again. I will always be many peop- many persons from now. You must from now be more than one, many people, as many as you can think of. And when I read this, I was probably you know, like a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. This was a really liberating concept for me because I had always struggled to feel like I could fit into a group of people because I always had really varied interests. So if I was with my like high school friends, then there's that high school popularity contest sort of personality that mm-hmm. you're going for. But then I went to a lot of indie shows and that didn't really fit with the other person that I was I was being in high school and so reading this was just really exciting for me to think that you didn't have to just pick one mm-hmm. now as an adult I know that people are much more varied than that um, and people become much more interesting as adults and and so this isn't really an issue anymore but at 21 this mm-hmm. was completely mind-blowing for me and even though I've sort of realized that that everyone is very interesting mm-hmm. uh, and has lots of different interests then then this is still a quote that really resonates with me so the book itself is full of illusions and assumed knowledge, so it definitely takes some work to read it, but it's really beguiling and gorgeous to read. Um, so when people ask me what my favorite book is, this is what I always tell them. And it actually made me consider going to grad school for Scandinavian studies, but all of the professors I was studying with went on sabbatical um, like oh. halfway through what I was doing. So I had to find a different concentration. So if they had not, I maybe wouldn't have been a, been a librarian and I would have had a failed academic career because I don't think I would have done well at that at all. But I loved reading the books. So um, this book really, really changed my life in a lot of ways. So That's fascinating. Yeah, it was, it's a, a, just a, a gorgeous, wonderful book. So, but I'm glad I'm a librarian. I'm glad I didn't I'm do glad you're academia. A too. So, <laughs> so the name of that is Seven Gothic Tales by Isaac Dinesen. I need to read that. I think it's great. I don't think I'd ever heard of anything she read before I met you, other than Out of Africa. Yeah, excuse she, me, anything she wrote. Other well, than, she's kind of people know Babette's Feast, and oh, and I didn't realize she wrote that. Yeah, she wrote that. Um, but because it's they're parts of collections, mm-hmm. then people don't generally like you don't get the name recognition mm-hmm. like you do with with a title that's mm-hmm. a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a few other stories of hers that have been adapted into probably foreign films, but they're, but if you, like, if you look her up, then they are mentioned mm-hmm. as, as being kind of famous, but, um, but yeah, she's, yeah. she just is so well known for that. that well, when I read circling the sun, I, which I talked about yeah. on the podcast, I w- I wanted to read what she, everything she wrote and everything Beryl Mark. Yeah, wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was so fascinated by the two of them. You should read everything they wrote. <laughs> I, I would should. support it. I will someday. 
All right. So my first one is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I know it's kind of a cliche and I'm sure I don't even probably really need to give a description because I'm guessing everybody kind of knows the story. It's become so ingrained in pop culture that there are all these spinoffs or sequels that have been created. Adaptations. Adaptations. Yeah. Yeah, So um, but I'll just for the two people out there that maybe don't know it, I'm going (laughs) to give a brief (laughs) overview. Uh, It was published in 1813. It's about five, the five unmarried Bennett sisters. And due to inheritance, inheritance rules at the time, they didn't get married. They would basically be penniless once their father passed away because they, um, it only could go to a male heir and Mm -hmm. they were five girls. So they would have to rely on other family members taking them in unless they got married. So when a wealthy man moves into the neighborhood, their mother immediately starts strategizing on how to get one of those daughters to marry him. His name is Mr. Bingley, and he takes a shine to the oldest daughter, whose name is Jane. And he has also brought with him his friend, Mr. Darcy, who is even wealthier than Mr. Bingley, but he's really standoffish and rude when he meets the Bennets, and particularly rude to Elizabeth, who's the second eldest. And um, she's really smart and quick-witted and can give back just as well as he can give to her. So she immediately doesn't like him. He immediately doesn't like her. Um, So that's all I'll say because I think everybody knows the story. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think you could draw a direct parallel of my love for romances to having Mm -hmm. read this book. I read it, I don't even know how many times. The first time I think was in high school, I'm pretty sure. Read it again in college, first class, and then I've read it probably four or five times since I've been out of college so something I feel like that even though you know the story just the way it unfolds is always so fun to read the way the relationships are built and evolve throughout the story it's just delicious and there's Mm -hmm. this lovely banter that goes on Mm -hmm. between Elizabeth and Darcy and it's masterful I mean there's a reason Jane Austen is still so popular today I think too popular I think there's probably a little bit of backlash against the the whole Jane Austen canon but um I don't know I still can read it and and I've seen all the movie adaptations and no matter how many times I experience a story I still just love it as much as I did the first time and I talked about eligible I think mm-hmm. yeah 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 and I don't remember when but that's I think you just did it the, the preview okay uh, well I read it, that so, yeah, yeah 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 so I had read that which is an adapt uh, modern day adaptation mm-hmm. and I love that too I mean I just love any sort of variation on yeah. the story so um, it's Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. It's one of my all-time favorites. That's a good one to pick. It's funny. I I also have read it several times, but in the in every college class I've taken where we've covered Jane Austen, they've said, I'm sick of the professor doesn't want to read Pride and Prejudice. I'm so sick of Pride and Prejudice. And so we've read Emma like, mm-hmm. like 12 times oh, or something, gosh. which Emma is great, but yeah. I've read it too many right, times. Right, right, so right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that they always pick that, that as the backlash too. Yeah, I think I read that in college also I think I I don't remember yeah I think I read both and I read persuasion too oh. took a lot of writ lit in college yeah yeah <laughs> you yeah. can't tell <laughs> <laughs> um all right so what's your next one okay my next book is and then there were none by Agatha Christie this is a classic mystery it and it's one of Agatha Christie's only standalone mysteries and it's considered her masterpiece and it's the best-selling mystery of all time and oh. one of the best-selling books of all time I saw something that said it was number seven of oh best-selling of all time all time that is impressive that is very impressive i wonder what's above it the bible probably shakespeare yeah interesting maybe some other stuff huh i'm sure i didn't look that part up (laughs) (laughs) so the book is pretty familiar i think to to or the story is pretty familiar but i'll tell you um it's structured around the children's nursery rhyme which is called 10 little indians 
And actually, the book itself had a different name originally that I won't say because it is terrible. (laughs) And it had some slightly different elements in the story, but those have since been changed to make it less overtly racist. Mm -hmm. So hooray for modern sensibilities. (laughs) In the book, eight people have all been invited for different reasons to a remote island that's off the coast of England. And some are there as potential employees and some are there as guests of the host, Mr. Owen. And there, I think there's some other reasons too, but I can't remember them right now. When, they're, when they arrive, they're all greeted by the butler and the housekeeper, and they sit down to dinner, um, which when they sit down, the, the table has a set of little Indian figures, and mm. there's 10 of them. Hence, that, yeah. <laughs> um, but instead of their host joining them, they start to hear a recording play, and it's, it is a voice that's accusing each person at the table of a different crime. Oh. So soon, they, they're kind of up in, in, in there's an, an uproar over this, and they're, they're trying to protect their reputations and, and saying they're just freaking out over this entire scenario and trying to figure out who brought them here. But soon um, people start dying in ways that mimic the nursery rhyme. So as each person is murdered, then then a figure disappears from the table. and They don't know who is taking it away. So which to me is like the creepiest <laughs> element ever. Of, oh, I love that part so much. It's so scary. So there's no way to get access to this island. It's it's. Um, they're the only people that are on the island are the guests of this at this house um uh, so that it has to be one of them there's no place for anyone to hide uh-huh. there's there's just nothing that that there's no other solution other than that it's one of these people but but who could who it be it? and uh the tension in this is, is just amazing so the first time i read this it w- i was in high school and this is the first experience i ever had of a book that i couldn't put down and i like literally couldn't put it down uh-huh. I, I have a distinct memory of, of sitting and I had all of my math homework around me and just not being able to do it because I, I couldn't handle the idea of not knowing what was going on in this book. And I had to race forward to find out what, what the uh, solution was. Um, and that was really unusual for me because I was a super dutiful student. Uh-huh. And at the time, I don't know that that lasted forever, but I, I always did my homework. Uh-huh. I just would never have, have put pleasure reading above that. So so that's kind of a formative memory of that right. that book that that just couldn't let you go and it, it's also a really important book for me because i i became a huge mystery lover and i had loved mysteries before this and had read mysteries before this but this was the first time that sort of showed me what they could do and how innovative they could they could be um and so even though i haven't read every mystery i think this is the best mystery ever written uh-huh. <laughs> i think that this would definitely be my favorite mystery ever I know that that for a lot of people, this the the story is pretty. Even if you hadn't known that this was the plot of the story, it's something that's been parodied and copied so many times. Like the movie Clue is a really um, that's big, what I was thinking yeah. when you were saying they all gathered and I was like, that's yeah, like Clue. yeah, it's exactly like Clue. So the premise is is pretty familiar, but if you haven't read this book, this is the best version of it. This is the original. It's it's just amazing. I I adore it. It's called Ten Little. Oh, nope, it's not called that anymore. It's called <laughs> And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. I don't think I've ever read that. Really? I know. Shocking. Come on. I know. Another one to put on the to read pile. Uh, All right. So my next one is The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. (laughs) And this is one that when I was narrowing down my favorites, this one stood out to me because it was such a surprise of how much I loved it. I love that experience. Uh, Yeah. Sometimes I love books more because they're I think that's why I loved it more because I didn't know really when I was going into what I was going to think or what it was about and it's a fantasy kind of Uh and I was like that's not really my thing so that's that's how it ended up on my three that I'm going to talk about today 
It's about the Cirque des Rêves, which is a circus that appears without warning. It shows up one night or the day before nothing existed, and it exists for a short time and then will disappear the same way. So it's always kind of mysterious and a mystery to the townspeople that are drawn to the circus. Inside the circus, it's all black and white tents, and it's not a typical circus attraction. You'll find a garden made of ice, maybe, or um, you can get lost in a maze of clouds. Uh, Everything's impossible and magical and mysterious, and it just has this overwhelming sense of, of wonder about it. Um, But behind the scenes of the circus, two magicians are competing in a game against each other by each raising a child with magical powers to compete. And the children are unaware of their part in the competition. So their names are Marco and Celia, and they're two pawns in this game. And they grow up with their, I'm going to say masters, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. These magicians that are raising them, teaching them all of these magical things and, and not realizing what the greater issue is here that they're they're pitted against each other and so then they meet as young adults and they fall in love Marco and Celia do so without ever realizing that that's their opponent and it's really atmospheric and really well drawn you can completely picture or I could I should say the circus and Mm -hmm. and all of the characters and the elements the magical elements that make up the circus Uh, and it's really beautiful and lush as she's describing all of the different magical exhibitions I just completely felt swept away into the world and it was one of those books that I wanted to keep reading I didn't want to put it down because I wanted to find out what happened but I also found myself kind of slowing down and putting it down as I was getting closer to the end because I didn't want it to end Um, it's also one I've read more than once I read it on my own and then suggested it for our book club to read Mm -hmm. and it was very interesting in the book club because there were two opposing reactions to it either everybody loved it or they really didn't like it and it was all about whether they bought into the premise of this circus even existing of, of the magic of it yeah like people were kind of questioning the magic and the, those of us that just went with the story loved it so mm-hmm. I think that that really how your reaction to those sorts of things that all your your opinion of the book is totally going to depend on that with, right. whether you can buy into it or not um, so that's the night circus by Aaron Morgenstern that's interesting because I have the, I haven't read it yet yeah but I have friends that adore it and yeah. friends that hate it yep. and I can't they're friends that have agreed on other books right. pretty regularly yeah. Yeah. so I can't figure out what the difference is so right. yeah I need to read it and be the tiebreaker I think you do I think you do <laughs> anyway did I already say the title again that's the night circus by Aaron Morgenstern I think I already said that yeah. has she written anything else since no then? ah I know it's been probably five years or something or six years oh since yeah she read it. it's been a while I think huh. maybe did she write a short story I feel like maybe I don't know but no short no stories novel. don't cut it I know no other novel Mm. And at some point, at one point, they talked about making a movie out of it, but they haven't done that either. I know. Anyway, so sad. Book lovers' dreams. I know. Okay, my next book, my last book, is uh, called "Till We Have Faces" by C.S. Lewis, and this is a retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche, but it's told from the perspective of Psyche's older sister, uh, Orwell. And she is the daughter of the King of Gloam, which is a fictional primitive city that's, that's in the Greek, the ancient Greek world. Um, so the, the widowed king, um, his wife has died. At, at, I can't remember if it happens in the book or, or before the book starts. Um, he remarries, and he and his new wife have a child named Psyche, who is stunningly beautiful, while uh, Orwal is, an, is very ugly. Um, but rather than being jealous, like you'd find in a lot of um, kind of classic mm-hmm. myths, then Orwal is is kind of obsessively um, 
she, she I obsessively adore psyche I would say um so so and they're and they're very very close but psyche's beauty has angered the goddess I don't know how you, how do you pronounce this um Ungit, I would say um and one of her priests has told the king that the plagues that are that are afflicting his kingdom are because of of this goddess's wrath and that psyche has to be sacrificed in order to appease her um and she'll be sacrificed to the unknown god of the mountain and no one really knows what that is and so so they go through with this and orwal attempts to save psyche but she fails and later goes to the mountain to try to to collect the body but um instead of finding it she finds she finds psyche alive and and well and she says that she's actually really happy and she's living in a castle with the god of the mountain and that she's never seen him um, and they only meet at night. Um, so so it's kind of a strange situation. And Orwal is suspicious of this and she gives Psyche a lamp to try to see her husband at, at night while he sleeps. Psyche initially refuses, but she eventually gives in because of her great love for her sister. But when she's caught by the god of the mountain, he banishes her and she has, she has to wander in exile for the rest of her life. And Orwal finds this out, but she, um, she cries out against the gods and she feels like they should have assured her that, that her sister was happy and, and well and that this is this great wrong that's been, been done to her. So she becomes really embittered and she decides to uh, veil her face for the rest of her life. So at that point, the book suddenly breaks off and starts a second part where it, it, it's, um, it's sort of structured that Orwell is writing her life's history in both parts of these books. And she the second part starts out with Orwell saying that she's writing to cl- to correct all of the things that she got wrong in the first part and all the things that she didn't see clearly. So so there's just this huge shift in the book at that point. Um, and the the second part is actually really brief and and but it's kind of the the meat of the book. Mm-hmm. The it, it's probably a quarter of the size of the rest of it. But everything that you need to chew on is in this the second half or second part of the book. Um, I was actually talking with my best friend who had recommended this book to me last night just to refresh my memory because it's been several years since I read this. And she brought up all these these uh, kind of philosophical issues in the book that I hadn't remembered or probably even recognized at the time that I read it. And there's just there's so much you can you can um, consider in this book. So it really benefits from rereading. So in full disclosure, I'm a religious person, which is part of the reason why I really love this book, because it has some some bearing on religious questions that I have. One of those is that it, or one of the things I love about it is that it addresses this great problem of theology of the the distance between the human and the divine and trying to make up the difference between a limited human perspective and an infinite divine perspective, which is really hard to reconcile at Uh times in our lives. But that same concept, I think, can apply to people who are non-religious. If you look at it in terms of how we blind ourselves with our own human understanding and sort of lose lose sight of this big picture of the universe, then... Um, I think that regardless of your perspective, this is a book that can can appeal to anyone, mm-hmm. um, um, whether religious or not. So C.S. Lewis is mostly famous for Chronicles of Narnia, and this is a very, very different book than that. It doesn't have, even though he's trying to make religious points in the book, it doesn't have a clear Christian allegory in the way that, that um, the Chronicles of Narnia do. So it, it definitely has, has a perspective, but it just is, is a lot murkier than mm-hmm. you'll find in those books. Um, and it has a lot to work through. There's a, it's darker mm-hmm. than than the Chronicles of Narnia, but it's it's so 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 rewarding, and it, it's just it's just an amazing amazing book. So um, it's called Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Never ever heard of that. What what brought it to your attention? Uh, it's one of my best friend's favorite oh, books, okay. and so she she's much more invested in theology and the study of theology than I have ever been. But um, I think we had like a we were roommates for a while, and I think that she I think we had a roommate 
book club mm-hmm. and uh, that was her pick and all of us were just we none of us had read it before mm-hmm. besides her and we were all blown away by it and it just the writing is is great it's mm-hmm. it's this really intriguing world but then it has this this sort of section at the end that you just feel like you need to reread over and over and over again so it's it's really great that sounds fascinating yeah I like it all right my last one is tiny beautiful things advice on love and life from dear sugar by Cheryl Strayed and this is an example of why of a book that just hits you at the right time of your life um that maybe if you read it at a different time you'd think oh, okay that's a good book and move on but yeah. this was one that when I read it, it had a huge impact on me. So it's about, uh, or let me start. Cheryl Strait is the author of Wild. Mm-hmm. I think that's how most people know her. And for a time, she was the anonymous advice columnist for a website called therumpus.net, which I don't even know if it still exists, that website. I'm not sure. Either. But she had a column called Dear Sugar, and she gave thoughtful, compassionate, honest advice, often with a dose of tough love and, mm-hmm. and kind of like, uh, I don't know how to... Uh, you kind of have to read them to understand, but uh, just she's not all about manners, I should say. Um, So it's a collection of her columns, some that were previously unpublished and some that were published on the website, and they cover life, love, career, loss, everything in between. And she weaves a lot of her personal experiences into her responses. So it feels like a mesh of a memoir and an advice book and self-help in a way, because Mm -hmm. as you're reading it, even the ones that don't have much of a relationship to your own life, you can still find little nuggets of wisdom in there to kind of apply to your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And those, I like memoirs, but I don't really read advice books. I don't really read self-help books. So again, this was a surprise that I I loved it so much. But like I said, it really resonated with me. It clarified some things that I was kind of grappling with at a time in my life and career. and, And then I've passed it on to basically everybody I know (laughs) Um, and uh, they have all been had a similar reaction to me yeah I think it's a it would be a great book for a new graduate um, or somebody who's just kind of at a crossroads in their life of any sort particularly women although Mm -hmm. I think it would appeal to men too it's really candid and engaging it's genuinely moving at at times and it also she doesn't shy away from salty language or Mm -hmm. situations that might make you a little uncomfortable so you do you do need to know that going into it because it it isn't the dear abby advice column that that people might know of so um that is tiny beautiful things advice on love and life from dear sugar by cheryl strayed we'll be right back with what we're reading this week And what are you reading this week? Um, I just finished a book called The Midnight Watch by David Dyer. And I think I told you about this. You did. Passing. I have it sitting on my nightstand right now. Well, when I told you about it, I, I specifically said I'm going to talk about this as a what I read this week because it's I'm, I know it's going to be kind of a nice book, but I won't love it. And I ended up loving it. So, <laughs> so well. Best laid plans. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you've ever had more than a passing interest in the Titanic, you've likely heard of the Californian. Um When the Titanic sank, there were several ships in the vicinity that heard its distress calls and came as quickly as they could, but none of them were close enough to actually get there in time to save anyone. Um, They only got there in time to pick up survivors, basically, after the the ship sank several hours later. 
the one exception to this is the Californian, which was actually close enough that the people on the Titanic could see it. And they, the people on the Californian could see the Titanic and the distress rockets that they were sending up, but they didn't do anything to help. So this is, has kind of been this, this huge mystery of, of the story of the Titanic. Um, the officer on duty who is named Herbert Stone actually saw the rockets and sent multiple messages down to the ship's captain who is named Stanley Lord. And um, he was asleep in his own cabin and he just said to keep watch and to let him know if anything else had happened. So in the aftermath of this disaster, once everything had, once everyone was, was back um, and they were doing uh, inquiries, then Captain Lord was actually questioned by two different government agencies, both in the United States and in, in Britain, to try to explain his lack of action, which is the question of both why the ship didn't respond to eight rockets that were fired and why no one thought to wake up the wireless um, operator to try to listen for a distress signal so um, or to, to send a message to the Titanic mm-hmm. itself and find out what was going on. So this is a fictionalized account of this true story of what happened, and it's trying to answer these questions because no one knows mm-hmm. any, why why this this was the case. They they have the testimony of of Captain Lord, but that's it's not really satisfying of of what actually happened. Um, the book is framed by an uh, an investigation by a fictional journalist named uh, John Steadman, and he is trying to find an angle to the story that sort of sets him apart from all these other reporters that are trying to to break the story of the Titanic, and he he needs something more than that. So even though even though the ultimate answer to the mystery is is speculation on the part of of the author David Dyer, I really loved the conclusion that he comes to, and I I liked that he um, he did a lot of research on this, and he actually had access to documents that hadn't been seen by the public and sort of lifted a lot of the dialogue from the from these documents directly into the book which which has a just a, a kind of air of truth to it which is fun i think I, I was telling you when we were talking about this book before that i'm not a writer and i don't ever come up with stories on my own but this is the only kind of book i think i could maybe come up with this idea that you are finding a super famous historical event mm-hmm. and you find an angle to it that mm-hmm. that isn't just like a minor character or or adding a, a fictional person into it, but finding this this sort of side story that that sort of gets forgotten by by the majority of the population. So this is this is a great example of it. It's good historical fiction, and I'm kind of annoyed I didn't think of this myself, but I wouldn't have done as as good of a job with it as David Dyer uh, ended up writing. So I I really enjoyed this. I at one point I just couldn't put it down and I raced through to the end, and I, I thought it was great. So. I hope you like it too. I do too. <laughs> yes, I, like I said, I checked it out. So it's much. sitting on my nightstand right now. It's not as long of a book as I would expect uh-uh. it to be. It's only yeah. like a couple hundred pages. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not too bad. So yeah. it's called The Midnight Watch by David Dyer. All right. What I'm reading this week uh, is The Assistance by Camille Perry. And this is what I would consider to be basically a perfect summer read. It's great to take to the beach or the pool. Um, you know, have a glass of lemonade next to you while you read it. It's uh, about a woman named Tina Fontana, who is the assistant to the head of a large media conglomerate. He's sort of a Rupert Murdoch stand-in. And she's really good at her job, but she feels underappreciated and sort of like she's just going through the motions at this point. She never Mm -hmm. expected to be, I think she's 30. She never expected to be a 30-year-old assistant. Mm -hmm. You know, she expected to have climbed the ladder, corporate ladder, career ladder, a little bit more than that. Uh, one day, her boss's private jet is out of service, so he tells her to call the airlines and clear out first class so he can fly to some sort of business 
event. And uh, he doesn't want to be inconvenienced by other passengers around him. He also <laughs> wants it comped. He doesn't want to have to pay for it, which uh, you, I've, I've heard that. Like if you're rich, you don't pay for anything right. because everybody wants to give you stuff. So right. uh, she calls the airline and is able to get the tickets in first class. They bump other people. But the customer service agent basically laughs at her when she asks for them for free. Mm-hmm. So Tina goes ahead and splits the cost of the tickets onto several of her credit cards and then submits a reimbursement form to the accounting office at the company to be reimbursed. But then not too long after that, the airline gets in touch with her and apologizes for the behavior of the customer service agent and refunds the money for the the tickets to her credit card. At the same time, she receives the reimbursement check from the accounting department. So she, Ooh. yeah, so she now hasn't spent any money, and she has a check for about twenty thousand dollars. And nobody seems to notice that she has the extra money. So she holds on to it for a little while, thinking somebody's going to come and say to her, "We need that check back, or yeah. you need to rip it up, or whatever." And it's the almost exact same amount as what she owes on her student loans at this point. Oh my so, gosh. That's the worst thing to hear. I know. So she is, you know, she knows ethically she should yeah. not cash the check. But she also feels underappreciated and like $20,000 for this multi-billion dollar company and for her boss is, is just a drop in the bucket and right. nobody would ever notice it. So she decides to use it to pay off her loans. And it's interesting because one of the things is that it's an all electronic transaction. So, you know, she takes a picture of the check on her phone to deposit it. She doesn't actually have to go to a bank. And then she, all she has to do is transfer money to the student loan company to right. pay off. So she, there, she's never actually handling the money or it's all very easy. And so yeah. there's, there's a little bit of a comment about it's, it's easier to do it that way and less like something major is happening because it's all on the computer and she, or on her phone or tablet. So she never really feels like she's doing anything wrong because it's mm-hmm. all just numbers on screens. It's not actual money. She that's it. She's not planning on doing anything beyond that. It's paid off her loans. She's going to move on until an assistant in the accounting department <laughs> catches on to what she did and decides she wants to be part of the scheme and have her student loans paid off. So from there, it kind of snowballs into a whole uh, bigger thing than just this one assistant paying off her student loans with this extra money that she had. Um, So it it is light, fluffy Mm -hmm. beach reading, but there is some social commentary here about all of these assistants who toil away for about $30,000 a year in New York City, where $30,000 is nothing. (laughs) And um, they have these enormous student loan debts to pay off of. Um, Like $20,000 for her is actually very low. I mean, some of them are like $80,000, $100,000. And it it was just engaging and fun. It's a perfect book, like I said, to kick off beach reading Mm -hmm. season for me. I read it while I sat by the pool. It was perfect. Nice. Yeah. So that's The Assistance by Camille Perry. That's such a perfect thing to pick, too, the student loan repayment. Right. Because that's such a source of of pain for so many of us. And and that is... As soon as you said that, I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. That's like, a- it's not like she just took the money to right. spend on. Went on a shopping spree. Right, and- right. It was for her education. Yeah. So- well, and, and just, just something that's such a stress in so many people's <sighs> lives. And yeah. and I I am not saying I would do that at all. <laughs> but, it, but that, as soon as you said student loan, I yeah. thought, wow, that's the thing that would make me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have, it like, becomes cause. understandable. Right. It, it, you, don't, you don't think, well, why would she ever do that? It becomes completely right. understandable. So oh, that sounds really fun. It was fun. It was really fun. Uh, all right. So let's go back and mention all of the books we talked about. OK. Um, I talked about Seven Gothic Tales by Isak Dinesen. And then there were none by Agatha Christie. Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. And what I read this week was The Midnight Watch by David Dyer. 
And I talked about Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed, and what I read this week was The Assistance by Camille Perry. Um, happy anniversary, Anne. Happy anniversary, Here's to one more year. Yay. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at wellreadpodcast. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes or your other podcast provider of choice. Our podcast is engineered by Adam Farver. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at BeaufortCountyLibrary.org slash wellread, where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode. Thank you all for listening, and happy reading. Happy reading.